Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating excellent video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Christopher Dow. Very, very milky. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Newly permitted in your local area. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! If this is the first episode you're listening to, we would like to tell you that we have a Patreon page. If this is not the first episode you're listening to of the podcast, then you'll know we have a Patreon page. It is at www.patreon.com slash our three cents. If you head over there, you can see all of the amazing things you can get in exchange for sending us some pennies of support. Backing our different Patreon tiers is absolutely essential to what we're doing and uh, allowing us to keep on growing and making more stuff and keep the content of the quality, which you have not only used to, but also you deserve. And if you don't think you deserve it, look in the mirror and say, oh, I deserve it because that's true. And it's not a one-way street. Uh, obviously, in exchange for those pennies, we give you amazing perks, such as deleted scenes and outtakes, full bonus episodes that are just fantastic, there's access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord channel, there's custom artwork, there's bonus video comp, there's loads of stuff. We'd love it if you uh, if you hopped over there and came and joined our, I mean, admittedly elite community, but it's great. For all of our other social media platforms, do check out our Linktree page at O3C Podcast, and you can find links to our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, our Instagram, everything. Just get involved, for God's sake. So, this week we have Chris's third favourite game of all time. I can't believe we're in the top three. Oh. Now, I say this every week, but it's, it's mad to think that we're now in the top three. True. I can't wait, I can't wait. But before we do that, it is time to return to the quiz oh boy. but before that oh it boy. is time oh. to return to the quiz uh, master's challenge oh oh nice i like that as we know we've allowed jonathan a few crumbs from our table of quizzical enjoyment over the past few weeks so this is a uh, this is this is a fairly beefy question this week, so this this could be make or break for you, Jonathan. Okay. As we all know, <laughs> in The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, one of the main mechanics is wearing different masks. But can you name all 24? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, okay, right. Oh, fucking hell. No, I can't. The correct answer is no, you cannot. That's another 50 points to you, Jonathan Dunn. Well done indeed. Okay, and for those of you following along at home, the masks are Deku, Goron, Sora, Fierce Deity, Great Fairy, Cafe's Mask, Bremen Mask, Kamara's Mask, Blast Mask, Bunny Hood, Keaton Mask, Postman's Hat, Mask of Truth, Mask of Scent, Don Jero's Mask, Romani's Mask, The Garrow Mask, The Captain's Hat, The Stone Mask, The Circus Leader's Mask, All Might Mask, The Gibdo Mask, The Couple's Mask, The Giant's Mask, and then you've got the Unwearable Mask, which are Adolwa's Remains, Goat's Remains, Georg's Remains, Twinmold's Remains, The Moon Mask, and The Sun's Mask. So you nearly had it, Jonathan. You're just going to have to be content with 50 points again for this week. I will absolutely take that. Over in the other quiz, um, also known as 
the quiz, mm. Chris has managed to get himself a two-point lead after last round's excellent audio description round. So this round, Minty, you're going to have to step it up. I've called this round the chicken or the egg. Oh. oh okay. <laughs> because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you two moments from gaming history and you need to tell me which came first. Oh, no. that's exciting. Chris is going to be so good at this. You've got three questions each, okay? Minty, which of these two events happened first? Dragon's Lair is released as a Laserdisc game. Or Atari buries thousands of copies of their failed E.T. game in a landfill site in New Mexico. Oh, I think it's the E.T. game. I think that was 83? You're correct that it is 83, but Dragon's Lair actually came out earlier in 1983. So I'm afraid you do not get a point there. Good knowledge, though. 1983, well done. Yeah. Didn't get me a fucking point, point though. Oh, or maybe it did. (laughs) Whee! Well, I was going to until that absolute outburst. No. My hubris, my anger... Uh, Once again, it's your undoing. Yeah. Chris, moving from software to hardware, which event happened first in the realms of regional home console releases? The SNES being released in Japan or the Genesis or Mega Drive being released in South America? (sighs) I I think the Mega Drive came out first, but I, I don't know. Is that your guess? Yes, Mega Drive. Okay. The Mega Drive launched over two years before the SNES in Japan, but in South America, it was released two months before the SNES released in Japan. So oh, congratulations. Oh, wow. I don't, I don't know why it's like that. Thank goodness. Yeah, I, I, well knew done, it was, I knew it well had done. a long lead time, but I didn't realise how, how they mm. overlapped. Okay, Minty. Mm. What came out first? Pac-Man or Ed McMillan? Oh. <laughs> oh okay ed mcmillan is in his 40s i'm going to say ed mcmillan came first well pac-man came out on the 22nd of may 1980 ed mcmillan's birthday was also in 1980 but it was the 2nd of march congratulations minty oh thank goodness what a guess well done (laughs) oh okay chris in 1996 Two classic first-person shooter games came out, but which came out first? Duke Nukem 3D or Quake? Uh, Duke Nukem 3D. That is the correct answer. Well done, yes, by about six months, Minty. Mm, Yes. 1994 saw two high-spec 2D 16-bit platformers emerge on rival platforms, but which emerged first? Sonic & Knuckles or Donkey Kong Country? Donkey Kong Country. That is incorrect, no. I'm afraid. Oh. Donkey Kong Country came out a month later. Chris, yes. let's finish on gaming conventions. Which classic gaming convention came first? E3 or the Tokyo Game Show? Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess and say E3. I don't... Um, yeah, E3. Well, this is actually the biggest time difference between answers in this round, with a whopping like year and a half between these events. And... Absolutely. E3 came first in 1995. What a sweep. Wow. Fair play. Well done, Chris. You've extended your lead by another two points. So you are now on 
81 points, whilst Minty is trailing on 77. Okay. <laughs> Tasty. There's still time, Minty. There's still time. Oh, I hope so. So before we move on to talking about what we've been playing this week, uh, at the point of recording, and I, I know that this is this is uh, probably a couple of weeks old by the time you listen to this, uh, but we've just had the Steam Deck announced uh, and, and revealed by Valve, which is Valve's handheld gaming PC, which very much looks like a rival to the Switch. It it looks like a Switch, but it's a gaming PC, and it's got the innards of a much more powerful machine, something akin to, like, even what it's more powerful than a PlayStation 4, apparently. So, yeah, Valve have given us the Switch Pro, yeah. because Nintendo didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got, it's got the potential to be a huge game changer, particularly as they've revealed that you can, you don't even need to keep Steam OS running on it. You can install Windows on it. It's a PC. So there's nothing stopping it becoming the brand new kind of emulation station. And it's got the power to run most consoles from ever. Like, <laughs> it's very exciting. And I'm I'm personally really looking forward to getting one. Like, I kind of finally feel vindicated, having always been like a handheld gamer since I was a kid. And now this year we've got like, well... We've got the Switch OLED model, we've got the Playdate coming out, and now we've got Steam Deck, and it's all going handheld, and oh, I can't wait. The The idea that I could play, like, PlayStation 4 games, like, I could play Dark Souls 3 or Sekiro on a handheld. I even, like, the idea of playing older games, like, I always dreamed of being able to play, like, Thief and Thief 2 on, on like... Game Boy Advance or something, uh, which which when I when I saw X versus Sever, I believed could be done. Absolutely, yep. Shoot for the stars. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think it's really, I think it's really, really exciting. I think it is exciting as an emulation uh, kind of station, especially as it will easily run GameCube games, Wii games, even Wii U games. It could probably even run Switch games if you get that Switch emulator, which I'm not condoning because I'll still support the Switch legitimately. What do you guys make of it, Chris? I'm I'm quite excited. I th- I think since we had the announcement a few days ago, I've I've oscillated between being like, yeah, yeah, we're all guns blazing, and and then thinking like, I just I don't know how it will work, and and I have enough trust in kind of Valve and their hardware designers and stuff to to get it largely right. And, and on paper, like you say, it's a really exciting prospect because a handheld PC that can access even just your Steam library, which in my case is like a thousand games deep, yeah, yeah, yeah. is is tantalising, but. I know as well, just from playing on a laptop, there is a level of fiddling that comes with playing games on a PC <laughs> and knowing that, you know, th- this is a machine that primarily is running on like a, a Linux based operating system. There's going to be a-, a learning curve, I think, to get things running as kind of comfortably and, and as streamlined as the, the trailers have suggested. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, it's out of the box, it's going to have this SteamOS, like, the- like you mentioned, Valve first started using that quite a few years ago now when they were trying to do their i think the, the steam boxes yeah kind of as like streaming tech essentially that never really took off and whilst lots of steam games now have linux ports that are native and will no doubt just run great out of the box there's a lot of games that are not optimized for it and instead are having to run through i think apparently like a wrapper that takes the code that would you know, work for Windows and then just translates it on the fly to work for Linux. Okay. And for for older games, I've got no issue that I'm sure that will run very well because it doesn't have the same kind of uh, hardware need and stuff like that. But for newer games, I think there is going to be, like I say, just a level of tweaking required to get things running like 
we're told they should. Yeah. But I, I, I will be very invested in this project because, as you mentioned, I, I love emulation. At the moment, mm. I've got my homebrew Vita and I've got my Android TV, and that's been essentially my emulation setup with a handheld or on the TV. Yeah. But because this is a device where you can sideload and install Windows, you can, in theory, run anything. Like, like honestly, about anything. Because, yes, it's not as powerful as a, a two grand gaming PC, but it is powerful enough to emulate as you mentioned, like PlayStation 2, the PSP, the GameCube, the 3DS, the Wii U, you know, it's pretty much limitless. And on top of that, with a regular Windows install, it should also be able to play almost anything on Steam or the Xbox Store if you've got Game Pass or itch.io or the Epic Game Store. And, mm. you know, I, I, quite, I quite enjoy tinkering. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if it is a device that needs kind of a, a bit of poking to get it running its best, that suits me down to the ground. And the, and the thought of having access to that much on one device is really, really exciting. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's important that everyone who maybe isn't as invested in kind of faffing around as I am with, with mm. tech kind of understands that there, there could be a bit of work to kind of make it yeah. as, as easy to use as the Switch. So I think there's still very much going to be a market for both things because this almost feels like more of kind of a hobbyist piece of tech Whereas the Switch is just the lovely device that you pop in the TV and it, and it just runs. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it is a pretty exciting time. Valve basically said as well that if this is successful, there's nothing to stop any other hardware manufacturers just following suit. Yeah. So it could be in a few years time, we have a much more expanded marketplace where, you know, other hardware developers are doing something similar uh, and perhaps, you know, following a, a straighter Windows-based model, which does make things a little bit easier long-term, but... Who knows? I'm, I'm just waffling, really. But yeah, exciting. You touched on it there in terms of like how well Nintendo do things. And obviously, I, I know that, we, you know, we've been accused and we are guilty of being very, you know, I wouldn't say Nintendo biased because I genuinely think that Nintendo deserves <laughs> the yeah, plaudits that yeah. we give it. And, you know, there's a reason why we bought games on the Switch instead of PS4 when when those those were choices there's a reason why both me and you chris this year bought a new 3ds <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there is that lack of magic with the steam deck because it is very even just down to the design of it it's very it's just very functional the potential of it is so big that's exciting how about you minty what um what have you made of this so far i've been chewing over this for a few days now and i'm i am excited for it because as somebody who's never really had a a a, a decent PC, um, was just sort of run off uh, tablets and and uh, a Mac here and there. I've never really been able to get into the into the vast thousand strong Steam library that other people have been able to enjoy. And one of the things that I've 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 been thinking about is. This is going to be an incredibly uh, versatile and powerful handheld console. But is it going to unseat what is now basically the handheld monopoly for higher-end console gaming that Nintendo has with such things as the 3DS and now the Switch? I think they've done a remarkable job in um, in cornering that market, even with um, things like... Uh, uh, phones and tablets the ubiquity of uh, of touch screens and all the rest of it the thing that really that i can see that really brings people back to nintendo time and time again is the strength of their software the strength yeah. of their games mario pokemon zelda metroid all these sorts of things 
And I wonder if this new Steam console, going up against Nintendo's incredibly strong software library with the software library of basically the world, <laughs> I, I, th- I think it's going to give Nintendo a boot up the arse. I'm very excited for it. And <laughs> Nintendo's releases have been a little bit lax um, as of late, um, as, as we've discussed on the podcast with such things as uh, as Mario Golf and all the rest of it. There, there hasn't really been a an incredibly groundbreaking um, game that's come out that I can really think of at the moment. So I wonder if uh, this new thing that's coming out that people are going to be like, oh, well, I might as well get this because you know I could I could get my Steam library on it. I can I can I, I can I can mod it to play to play any game ever that sort of thing. I wonder if uh, Nintendo will sit up and take notice and think, oh well, maybe we should have revealed the Switch Pro at E3. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was Prime Four. All, all the remakes from the Wii U that we want, like yeah, uh, Twilight Princess, uh, Wind, Waker, Wind Waker, all that sort of thing. Metro Prime Trilogy, Metro Prime Trilogy, Blade. All these lovely games that you're basically just sitting on. I think you're right. I think it will. It'll be interesting to see what happens. No matter how much more powerful or how much more versatile other handheld devices have been, like the, the like the PSP or the Vita, or you know just mobile phones and tablets. Nintendo have always remained king of the handhelds. It's that Nintendo magic, you know, that other places don't have because they don't have the same, like, design philosophies or anything. They're the only things that you can play the best games in the world on, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. That's it, you know. So, yeah, they, 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 they've, they've cornered that market, really, but they are starting to rest on their laurels a little bit. They're starting to, starting to splinter and buckle. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a good fight. Hmm. And you know, I'll be I'll be happy to be representing both sides in that as I'll be as yeah. I'll be playing I'll be playing my Switch OLED in one hand and I'll be playing my Steam Deck in the other and I'll just have my I don't know my Playdate just swirling on my willy. <laughs> <laughs> as God intended. <laughs> so, uh, what have we played this last week? Chris, why don't you kick us off with uh, your gaming activity from the past week? I have pretty much just played Grindstone. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was pushed back into the game by the arrival of the physical edition from IM8 Bit last weekend. Excellent. Uh, that I ordered months back, uh, and there's there's always delays with that company. They make beautiful stuff, but they have the longest run times on everything yeah. they produce. You know, they're a company known generally for putting out vinyl soundtracks more than they are games, but they have produced. A few physical editions now of, of several Annapurna published titles. Oh. They put out that lovely uh, Ori box set that you picked up, Jonathan. Oh, yeah. And it does seem now that they're kind of branching out to support other smaller developers too, which is great for me as an obsessive <laughs> collector. It's just, you know, one more place to spend my money. I've had some busy days and nights on the approach to the end of the school term. Like I'm, I'm right at the end now. But Grindstone is such a perfect game for quick play sessions that it suited that schedule down to the ground this week. And I know I have waffled about this game a lot in the past. I I tried to sell Minty on it one week. I talked about it a lot when when Apple Arcade first came out. To be honest, I was just, I've I've been most happy that the exclusivity period for Apple Arcade ended because it it was too good a game to be locked to a single place and a monthly subscription. At the moment, you can get it on the Switch, whether that's physical or digital. You can get it on the Epic Game Store. At some point in the future, I imagine it will come over to Steam when that, you know, next period of exclusivity ends as well. And it's just a game I think everyone should play. Over the last year, the last kind of 12 months or so, the game's expanded quite a bit. 
playing it now compared to when I was playing it on the iPad. There's extra levels, there's extra enemies, there's bonuses, there's more modes, there's, there's tons. And, and dipping in and out over the months, it's a game that I've, I've grown to enjoy more and more and more every time I've picked it up. And playing it this week, I, I think it would now be in consideration for a spot in my top 20 or top 25 if my list were to be revised. Yeah, wow. It's, it's just an outstanding puzzle game mechanically, but it's also a real example where the aesthetic of the game contributes massively to the enjoyment I get out of it. And, and the visuals and the screen shake and the soundtrack and the effects work and the character designs, it's such a treat of a package <laughs> that I know for me, because I enjoy puzzle games, that I would like this game regardless of what it looked like as the mix of, well, it's almost like a colour matching puzzler and a turn-based grid strategy game at the same time. And, and that sort of pairing is really intoxicating. But when you chuck all the paint on top of it, it's world-class. Like stringing together massive chains feels so, so good. And I said a few months back when it first launched on the Switch that every time I have a big chain going, I give Georgia a little nudge. <laughs> and months on, I'm still doing the same thing, just like subtly broadcasting. I'll be playing, she'll be on her phone or laptop or whatever. And I'll do something good and I'll go, well, well, that that was a good move. And then I keep shifting glances between the screen and Georgia to see if she's looked up. <laughs> and it's like, I know she doesn't care. I know she doesn't care. But it's a game that feels just so satisfying both like mentally when you when you get a big kind of chain together and and physically because of all everything that's flashing and going on whilst you you know are, in, are reaping the fruits of your labor <laughs> it's it's an incredible achievement i absolutely love it so yeah that's that's kept me pretty busy this week actually it's funny you mentioned apple arcade because i have actually dipped back into apple arcade a little bit uh in this last week because one of the things that they've started doing in the last few months is they're basically releasing like plus versions of existing games. Okay. So things like Fruit Ninja, Game Dev Story, Black, Leo's Fortune, Inks, loads of kind of like the big iPhone game, Badland, things like Chameleon Run, Threes, Monument Valley, The Room Games, stuff like that. They basically put onto Apple Arcade of these like plus versions because these are games that either you buy the game or they've kind of gone free to play or free to try or something like that and you just get like an unlocked premium version of the game and that's especially good for gaming series that have gone entirely down the road of of, of freemium like angry birds and cut the rope and doodle god and angry birds reloaded yeah is what it's called on on apple arcade okay. and it is classic it's classic angry birds there's loads of levels in it there's no freemium content in there at all it's it's really really nice uh, to play that kind of unburdened by you know having ads and premium credit thrust down my throat every five seconds by <laughs> some pig taunting me saying you really should buy that eagle for 9.99 <laughs> which you normally would have yeah exactly exactly so that's really nice and it, and it's nice to sort of see them I don't know, sort of just, just sort of cultivating their, you know, this library and kind of honouring the uh, the commitment that you know people make for, for subscribing. And I have been playing. It's, it's sort of like a pseudo sequel to Alto's Odyssey, which is a game that I spoke about in our mental health episode, yes, which is yeah. just this beautiful sort of endless runner game uh, that's just really, really lovely. It's it's not a sequel. It's more of like a standalone add-on. It's like a refinement of the original game, but it's lovely and it's really, really nice to have that and sort of to have that on the go. 
that's that's really really good it's really good elsewhere i have also well i've continued playing monster hunter which has been great as uh my friend said to me when i said oh i've seen the credits now he said oh yes when you get to the credits of monster hunter that means you finish with the tutorial <laughs> and he's absolutely right uh, like there's just so much more of the game opens up after you've essentially you know beaten the the main story and yeah, it's it's just such a satisfying gameplay loop. It's actually it feels very similar in a way to something like Hyrule Warriors and and those like other Musou games because you you're basically just twatting enemies, targeting bosses, exploiting their weak points, getting some materials, crafting, getting stronger, rinse and repeat. And it's just yeah, it's really really great. And I have every intention of keeping on playing it. Uh, and completing the rest of the quests and upgrading my weapons some more and finding some more of the secrets and stuff like that that are in the game. It's just, it's lovely. But my main gaming activity of this last week has been the release of Skyward Sword HD on the Switch. It has. And I'm going to say first and foremost, what an incredible job Nintendo have done with porting this over to the Switch and the way that they've remastered it. Now, I never played the original uh, because I didn't really have a Wii. I, I, well, I had a Wii for a couple of months very early in its lifetime. And obviously, uh, Skyward Sword came out at a later date with the, the release of the Wii Motion Plus, which was the, you know, the advanced kind of movement control tech thing. So I never played the original. But from what I've read, like the quality of life improvements in this, in this remaster are massive and fix things that would have properly wound me up in the original <laughs> version. <laughs> And the graphical update looks fantastic. I I love the art style. It's got this it's got this beautiful like painterly style to it. Like Miyamoto said that he was really inspired by paintings from the impressionists. And so like there is this sort of like brush stroke type texture to well just a lot a lot of the buildings and the and the assets in the game. It just it looks it looks lovely and yeah, in HD it looks gorgeous. And also, this runs at a solid 60 frames per second, oh, which is, stuff. I didn't realise, it, it's actually a first for a 3D Zelda game. And it makes me wonder whether or not that's what they're trying to get Wind Waker and Twilight Princess HD to do before they port those over to the Switch, is get them running at 60 frames per second. Because it really, like, it really makes a difference. I mean, it's, it's classic, like, with, with 60 frames stuff, is when it's done well and it doesn't drop you don't really notice it and you think it's just the same. And then when you go back to playing in 30 frames per second, you're like, oh God, yeah, this is, you, you can really see like the juddering between the frames. So it would be lovely to play Wind Waker and Twilight Princess HD in, in 60 frames per second when they come to the Switch. But obviously like the main job that needed to be done with Scarlet Sword is, is porting the motion controls over. And yes, you can of course play it using the Joy-Cons as like the Wii Motion Plus stand-in. And I have tried playing some of the game like this and it's, it's, it's fucking horrible uh, because motion controls are inherently bullshit when it comes to their implementation in the majority of games. Fortunately, they have done a, I mean, a frankly, unbelievably good job in mapping all of the motion controls to button inputs. An easy comparison point is with the Super Mario Galaxy port that came out earlier this year in the Super Mario 3D All-Stars. And it, it seemed, like playing that, it seemed like Galaxy wasn't, well, it wasn't given much consideration for how best to port these controls over because they're not that essential in, in Mario Galaxy. Like, uh, the game isn't as centred around using them as much as Skyward Sword is. Like, it, Galaxy is very much 
it's like an add-on to augment your experience and Nintendo I think probably realised that you can live without those if you're playing with button inputs so they didn't worry too much about translating them over but it's it's very very different with Skyward Sword because so much of the game is based around the Wii controller and how you move Link and how you move your sword and your shield how you operate menus how you manage your inventory on the fly and they had to find a way of doing it because without that one-to-one control of your sword the game wouldn't work at all all the puzzles the navigation and the combat and many other things are specifically designed around using your sword like that they couldn't have just said oh well we'll just we'll just make it like you know like we've made any other 3d zelda game and just have a is hit your sword you need to be able to control how your sword is moving and it is frankly miraculous that they've managed to get it working in a control scheme on the switch but that does come at a cost which is a lot of new things to get used to so the sword movement is mapped to the right analog stick which is quite fun with like a few little flicks you can control exactly how you swing your sword but this means that in order to control the camera you have to hold down the l button and then use the right stick which does take a little while to get used to because you want to well you want to use the right stick to control the camera like you do in every other 3d game and I think I would have liked to have the option to reverse that control because it feels a bit more natural to me to have to always have control of the camera on the right stick. And because you hold like, well, ZL to target enemies, it feels to me that you would naturally hold down L or ZL to then switch into sword mode. But it's the other way around. But the original game didn't even have free camera control anyway because the Wii only had one analog stick. <laughs> Definitely a step up. <laughs> And like in order to access your different items, like with uh, the motion controls, you hold down like the trigger on the Wii Mote, and then you point to the we- to the item you want. But in this, you hold down ZR and then move the right analog stick around the wheel that appears to select your item, and then you press ZR to use it. And I mean, it's a good solution for a quick wrist flick selection. But I still think I would rather go in and out of a pause menu to do this because it does get quite fiddly because you need to like switch between different items you need to switch between those and your sword and camera management but you do get used to it but it is safe to say that there is literally no other game in the history of gaming that asks you to play it like this (laughs) so it does feel counterintuitive for the first few hours i think i was about eight hours in when i started to feel properly in control of like my movement mechanics and the camera and everything but even now that i'm like probably about 16 hours in now I'm still finding myself making errors and fumbling a bit, but the crucial thing is it doesn't stop me from playing it, which is which is yeah, obviously great. Uh, and and the game is is a good Zelda game. Like it's got great characters and it's got this lovely design. It's got a nice story with Zelda and Link's relationship at the heart of it, like much more so than any other Zelda game, which is really nice. And because this is kind of I think I don't know whether or not this was the first game to come out after the Hyrule Historia had sort of laid out that timeline because it feels like it's very considered where its point in the timeline is as opposed to all the other games which just feel crowbarred into a convenient timeline that branches off to make everything make sense in a sort of way. Uh, but because of that, like it does, it does have this like ancient sort of feeling to it. It feels like a tale happening right at the beginning of of, of time, and it's also nice to finally understand characters and locations that previously i'd only seen referenced in other games or in like hyrule warriors so i'm enjoying getting to know fee and finding out more about girahim and the imprisoned little toes that i enjoy chopping off in hyrule warriors (laughs) dungeons uh and bosses are all present and correct like they feel 
more puzzly than other Zelda games. And I think this is partly because of the control scheme, which, you know, fits a slower, more considered approach to solving puzzles. And like, you're much more likely to come upon enemies one at a time rather than in groups of three or four or five. Uh, because, yeah, you, like I said, you do need to consider what you're doing before doing everything basically you know because you have this this uh, this heightened uh, level of control over the character but I've, I've i've had some pretty head scratchy moments in the dungeons that's pretty good like the main overworld in this game is um it's the sky which is you know the equivalent of like the great sea in the wind waker or hyrule field in well you know the other zelda games or it is it's safe to say that it is not a patch on the great sea it feels actually very small and and sparse and whilst it is fun to like fly around and parachute onto different islands in the sky and explore them, it ha- it hasn't got anywhere near the same amount of intrigue and adventure that's in in Wind Waker. I mean, I'm only halfway through the game, but I think I mean I think it, I can say that it doesn't hold a candle to Wind Waker or Twilight Princess. Certainly not in terms of scale. But then thinking about it, I don't think actually it's a fair comparison point. I think it's more fitting to compare it to the DS Zelda games like Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks, where Nintendo vehemently proved that you could make a Zelda game using that console's gimmick being the touchscreen. And Skyward Sword proves that they can do that with the Wii's motion controls at the centre of it. And whilst it's an admirable achievement to be able to do that, I don't think it'll ever rival the other 3D Zelda games because they're they're just more fun to play. Like it's all well and good play. Like Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks, I had a great time playing. I'd rather play a Link Between Worlds. I'd rather play Link's Awakening. You know, but like I absolutely will see Skyward Sword through to the end. But I can't imagine that I'll play it through again. Like once I've done it once, but I, I do plan on lending it to Minty because I know you've never played this one either. And I, I definitely look forward to hearing your thoughts on it as, a, you know, you're definitely a Zelda head. And I know that you really rate the DS games. And I think that having that in mind, I think will help you approach Skyward Sword in, in more of a, a fitting manner than, than thinking it is, oh, it, it's it's the stepping stone between Twilight Princess and Breath of the Wild, which it's 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 not, but also... It is, in some ways. <laughs> Menti, what have you played this week? I'm 60 hours deep into Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Ah, uh, do you know what's going on yet? Not quite, no. No, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's gone from being a cyber detective game to a, a strange cosmic threat type game. And now I'm uncovering the the secrets of my character's past oh. through a trope that I love which is having your player character um, become basically unavailable, kidnapped or some such as that, and forcing you to uh, play through the game as a supporting character. Nice. I loved it in Baton Kytos. I love it in this game. I loved it in Kingdom Hearts. So I'm in the digital world now, which I recognize from the uh, from the cartoon, and I'm just... I'm, I'm I'm cracking on getting my field guide uh, filled up. I've been digivolving, digivolving into all the different, uh, all the different uh, digital monsters. It's great. It's really, it's it's an involving and itch scratching game. On top of that, I went over to my friend Steve's house earlier in the week, and he's been playing on my recommendation Forager. Oh, on his oh yes, oh, nice. How's he getting on with that? Well. I went over, we had we had a couple of brews, we took the dog out for a walk, and then he loaded up Forager, 
He's doing pretty well, actually. He's about halfway through. He's on le he's level 35. He's got a good few chunks of islands unlocked. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's done some of the puzzles. He's got a load of the buildings unlocked and built, etc., etc. Well, one of the things that I now realize after coming home and immediately re-downloading it on the Switch is, <laughs> wowee, uh, the Switch <laughs> is in trouble if the Steam console takes <laughs> off because I I was, I was I've, I've just loaded it up. I've got all the DLC now, or rather the, uh, the latest version. I'm max level. I've got my incredibly elaborate and enormous island structure with all the buildings <laughs> and everything. And I think it's about a frame every two seconds at the moment on the Switch. <laughs> I yeah. wonder, when when I replayed it not that long ago, when it had all its patches, I started a fresh save and it did still get to a point where it was not running well when I was kind mm. of at the end game. But I wonder if there are any optimizations which are kind of almost not applied because you're carrying on with the save you had previously possibly i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna start a new save file i turned off all like all the zhuzhi effects like particles the um, graphics yeah it's, it's, it's a black <laughs> screen i'm just i'm going by sound alone <laughs> and then the third thing that i've been playing this week in conjunction with mrs minty we have been trading blows oh dear. trading figurative <laughs> blows on beat saber ah very good yeah we're, we're going through everything on expert now she she's basically beating me on every song <laughs> but i'm side classing into uh, the one-handed mode because i know that when you play games like this when you play vr games that make you move around you do look like a dickhead but imagining myself there with my with my one lightsaber a cutlass if you will <laughs> with one hand behind my back <laughs> oh there's nothing quite like it it's tremendously fun so even though I'm I'm sacrificing bragging rights in in our house of two people, <laughs> the other one of which is the winner, it's still great. It's still great fun. I hope one day to get to expert plus mode, but for the moment, I'm just having a good time slapping down all of those strange boxes that come at you at a fair lick, as opposed to whoa, like a, a hornet's nest. <laughs> So, are we ready to enter the top three? Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Chris, will you be my sextant? <laughs> <laughs> Take us away with your third favourite video game of all time. My number three, I believe, was the genesis of this podcast. Oh! And it was, the first, <laughs> it was the first game in a number of years that really brought us together, Jonathan, after kind of a period of just, just drifting apart, as people do when they grow up that you know we, we've mentioned before how as we grew up uh you know we, if you're separated by distance when you start careers whatever happens to people as they as they grow we we were still in touch and we'd still recommend games to each other and we'd still send birthday gifts but things just get a little bit different because you're an adult and, and you don't always have you don't always have time for, for anything really but <laughs> the evening i started playing jonathan blows the witness yeah i um. i messaged you and I recommended it as being very much up your street. And then when we both finished it a few weeks later, we spoke on the phone for the first time in years for, for well over an hour. Mm. And it felt like the long form waffling format of this show was inadvertently born that day. Yeah. <laughs> and ev even if it would be another couple of years before we actually decided to do this project, the feeling of that conversation is what I wanted to recapture forever onwards from that point. And, and I feel really 
very privileged that we now do this as a trio every single week. I have this to look forward to every single week of my life. And, and that's a huge, huge thing. Back when The Witness launched on the PlayStation, I remember being in a quandary because I was deep into my pursuit of physical copies of games. And the notion of spending 30 quid on a digital version of what people were describing as just a puzzle game <laughs> seemed absolutely mad. And and at the time, like after a bit of back and forth, I decided, yeah, okay, I'll take the plunge. And then hours later, I had to physically pull myself away from playing at Gone 12 in the evening when I knew I had work in the morning. And and I, I genuinely believe that just a puzzle game is perhaps the greatest undersell of all time. <laughs> and yet... How how can you succinctly describe a game that's so simple in concept, yet so fleshed out and layered in execution? Because no elevator pitch for the game does this justice. Okay, you solve hundreds of line puzzles on a deserted island. That's accurate, but it sounds pretty shit. <laughs> and, and yet for the time I was playing it, the witness occupied every waking thought in my head for three, four weeks. And, and because beyond the mechanical description of line puzzles on, on an island... The Witness is just so much more than that, but it's not something you can put into words until you've actually played and experienced it. Because The Witness is a game about play, and it's a game about exploration, and it's a game about the way humans learn, and about organic discovery, and meditation, and philosophy, and epistemology, and solipsism. <laughs> it's, it's a game about patterns and connections. It's about nonverbal reasoning. It's a game that explores our very relationship with games, as well as our relationship with the people who make games. And it, it does so many things just whilst you are playing. None of this is like on a big tech sprawl at the beginning saying this is what you're supposed to be experiencing. You just feel it. it. It just comes to you as you are playing. Now, going right back to secondary school, I remember doing media studies and having to analyze an episode of The Office, the, the Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant comedy. And a student in our class was was complaining and told our teacher that the show was bad. That was that was his statement. And and our teacher, the inimitable Mr. Hayward, yeah. replied, Well, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and the witness is a game that I can fully understand may not be to the taste of everyone, but it's a game that I would defend to the death if someone suggested they hadn't enjoyed it because the quality of the game was somehow lacking. Because <laughs> they would be wrong. <laughs> And as your 14th favourite game of all time, Jonathan, you described eloquently the rough setup of the game. It is a game of line puzzles in various permutations strewn across an island. And over the game's 50 plus hours runtime, that setup never changes. You're not going to suddenly warp to a differing locale. You're not going to suddenly get a gun. You're not going to be given a fetch quest. There's no other NPCs to talk to. It's just line puzzles on an island. And, and that is your lot. But that's the power of The Witness. Because you know the object of the game and you know the object of the puzzles implicitly one minute into the experience. And, and because of that, early puzzles are, are really simple and they're simple by design because they've been deliberately crafted to ease you in, to, to kind of ease the player in and organically teach you how to interact with the world. And from that point, the challenge of the witness comes not from knowing what to do, but how to do it. And it comes from understanding the constantly introduced rules that dictate how your line needs to meander to the finish how that is kind of just evolving as you play so that what you were doing 10 minutes ago or what you were doing two hours ago or eventually what you were doing 50 hours ago in concept is the same thing, but in execution is completely different. Now for that first evening when I downloaded it, I was flying, like puzzles <laughs> were falling, bish, bash, bosh. Every few I might scratch my head for a minute or two, pondering what a new symbol could represent on the on the puzzle grid. And then once I'd kind of 
assimilated that into my brain, I was off again. And I probably solved 60 odd puzzles in those first few hours. And it felt a little bit like when you start a new Picross game now, where, you know, we've all played Picross for years now. We have a lot of logic puzzle experience. And those first few sets of kind of five by five puzzles, you can do in under five seconds each. You're, you're flying. But then each day that week, my progress would, would slow. And when, when you save your game in the witness, rather than giving you a percentage completion, it instead tells you how many panels you've solved. So day one, I was at 60 odd. Day two, I was probably at 100. Day three, 120. Day four, slowing down now, 130. Day five, 133, maybe. And I was playing the game for just as long each time, if not longer with each session. But my numerical progress was changing as the puzzles would sometimes need me to sit with them for half an hour to really pass and process how the grid had changed, which rules learnt previously would apply, how I was meant to tackle this particular challenge. I know that looking at a line puzzle for 45 minutes, slowly exploring the potential solutions and almost endlessly coming up short is not for everyone. (laughs) I do get that. I do get that this is not a game that everyone is going to rush out and want to play. But the sensation of figuring out the solution and finally having that proper eureka moment where your brain has essentially been able to project the answer onto this oblique abstract grid on screen it's greater than any accomplishment I've felt in any game. So I felt better beating puzzles in The Witness than I did five-starring whole Guitar Heroes, S-ranking the whole of Thumper, winning a Tetris Maximus on Tetris 99. All of those are fantastic achievements, I guess, but they're ones that are marked by a level of relief because they're games that push your skills and your reflexes and your dexterity to the limit. But when you complete one of those challenges, the main feeling you get is, is you know, you feel successful, but it's also just a massive release of pressure because that five minute spell of intense focus is lifted and you can step back and you can take a breath. And it's just, it's like decompression at that point. Whereas The Witness, it's happy for you to stare at one puzzle for an hour, slowly turning over the options in your head, making no tangible progress. It's then happy for you to draw out the puzzle on a bit of paper, take it to work, solve it during a low on activity and then come home excitedly nine hours later to actually deal the killer blow. And, and in doing that, when something's been in your mind for that long, you, you feel like a genius. You feel like an absolute genius because it's, it's not something you just sort of looked at for a couple minutes and it was done. It's not something you, that you did intensely for a few minutes and then it was done. It spent the day with you. It's been in your pocket. It's been a picture on your phone, you know, whatever it is, however you've taken it with you. You, you have internalized it and it's become part of you. Now, I don't want to talk about too many particulars with this game because there's so many moments throughout its runtime that, that left me properly stunned. And to spoil those for someone who's not played feels worse to me than giving away a plot twist for a TV series or a film. So instead, I want to try and give a few thoughts on some of what I think makes this such an impressive piece of design and such an impressive game. Approaching from a bit of a tangent, as, as I like to do, Mario stages are often built around a mechanic or a gimmick or or an object, something that's unique for that world or that level. And at the start of the stage, you're introduced to whatever the thing is. So let's say for argument's sake, it's a seesaw. The stage is going to open. You've got a little seesaw there you can hop onto. Little coins are going to guide you so you know how your jump's going to work off it. You're going to understand how the momentum of the thing works. But if you slip off, there's no penalty. There's just maybe like a little holding area that you fall down into and you can hop back up from. Then midway through a stage, that seesaw is now above a bottomless pit. So forgetting how it works will punish you by sending you back to a checkpoint. 
And then eventually, by the end of the stage, the seesaw is placed perhaps within a series of seesaws and other obstacles. And as your understanding of the trial has grown, so too has the challenge and the risk that goes with it. And that's what makes those games fun. The witness follows essentially this same pattern. So sometimes you're presented with four or five connected puzzle panels. Completing panel A will open B. Completing panel B will open C, etc. Panel A will usually introduce a new concept of some sort. So it could be that an icon pops up that you need to collect along your kind of lines that you're drawing on the grid. It might be a little marker you need to avoid. It might be that there's a symbol that implies that your line's movement needs to be altered in some way. But once you've got the basics, panel B takes that concept and ups the difficulty slightly. So maybe now the grid is larger. Maybe there's more of these icons or markers. By the end of the runner panels, these rules are then intersecting with rules you've learned previously in other areas. And although you're not falling to your death in a pit if you get something wrong, the time it takes to solve each puzzle is, is broadly relative to that kind of curve of difficulty that Mario Stages have pioneered. And, and it's really fascinating to see that design applied in a totally different setting and situation. But Mario isn't the only Nintendo franchise The Witness cribs from. And this is perhaps a bit strange to consider, given my usual gaming predilections, but I think The Witness is a Metroidvania through and through. Because you're not collecting augmentations to open ability-gated doors, but instead you are physically levelling up your brain and knowledge of this world. And there are puzzles and doors off the beaten track from the very first area of the game onwards that, yes, you could brute force the solutions, you could cheat and look up a guide, but the intention is for you to progress across the island until you've understood and learnt exactly how this puzzle variant works before then backtracking to use the mental equivalent of your missiles or morph ball or whatever to beat the previously impossible challenge. And, you know, from, from playing Zero Mission recently, there's that classic Metroidvania feeling that people love, where you might see a red door, for instance, then remember where on the map it was an hour later when you finally have the tools to unlock it, walking all the way back, popping it open and thinking, I am a fucking king. I'm the king of my own brain. I'm a master of recall. And beating puzzles in The Witness when they start to combine rule sets is this feeling times an almost infinite number. Like I've, I've never felt as smart or as vindicated or as respected or as rewarded as I did when playing The Witness. Like no game in the last 30 plus years has come close. And I think because of that, The Witness as a puzzle game is also a really beautiful counterpoint to my number four, to Tetris. Because whereas Tetris on one hand is a game about purity, like, you know, the few kilobytes of code in Tetris produce something that is so focused and refined and pure that, as I mentioned weeks back, the majority of iterations add nothing to the formula that was laid down in the 80s. But The Witness, on the other hand, is the polar opposite because it looks to try and answer the question, how far can we take a single idea before that idea is lost? And across the tens of hours I played, as my brain was bubbling away, it made me question and consider everything about games about puzzles about purpose it made me think about how play comes from the times we're not holding a controller as much as the times we are it made me think about what it is to learn and to improve and to get better and yet it was never mechanically about anything other than line puzzles so in in design it's a minimalist game with a maximalist impact and thinking about the witness really seriously for this week for the first time in a long time all the games at the top of my list could be my number one game of all time, honestly. Like, I could take the top 10, I could write each title on a bit of paper, shuffle them in a hat, and then if I pulled out The Witness as the best of all time, I, I couldn't argue with myself. I'd be like, yep, fair enough, number one. But <laughs> The Witness is a game that, wherever it places for me, really, 
being number three on the list here, I think every single person with an interest in interactive media should play, even though, as I've said, I appreciate the pace and the setup is not going to work for everyone. I think more than anything else on this list, The Witness is a work of art, truly. It is my third favourite game of all time, and it is essentially by one man. So Jonathan Blow's The Witness is is a real greatest of all time. I absolutely cannot argue any of that. <laughs> I think, you know, we've spoken quite well, we've spoken a bit during this top 10 about, you know, the difference between our favourites and stuff that we critically say is like the best. But when you get a game that, I mean, this this resonated with me so much when I, when I first played it, you know, and oh, why did I place it so low? <laughs> Why is it not in the top top <laughs> ten at least? Like I, I wonder how long I have to leave it before I can play it again and it feel not completely fresh because that's impossible now. But I want to play this game again, but I, I think I have to leave it almost until I reach old age. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I I want to forget as much as possible to kind of approach it and every puzzle be a challenge again. And I worry that if I even if I go back now, it had such a such an impact on me when I was playing it that whether I think about it or or realize it now I've probably internalized some of those rule sets just in the back of my noggin yeah and I I I just want to see it and be like what the fuck is this I want to have that feeling again where like every new rule has me has me confused yeah like one of one of my favorite moments from playing the witness was Again, one of those kind of sets of puzzle panels that I'd solved the first puzzle. I thought I understood what the rule was. By the time it got to the second panel, I, I couldn't fathom what I was supposed to do. And what I thought I'd learned from the first puzzle was not working. So I, I was trying all these different sort of permutations of, of what could make it work. And eventually it unlocked and I moved on to the next one. And I was like, but I, I don't understand. I, I haven't understood what I've done there. I've just brute forced it. And it made the third panel impossible. Like it wasn't just like, oh, I can probably get through it. It was impossible. And and that feeling of like, no, I need to get better. Like that, that Metroidvania thing, I need the skill to solve this. And I went back to the second puzzle panel and I went over it and over it and over it until something clicked. And I I leveled up internally. My head leveled up. And <laughs> and that that was the whole 60 hours of this game. Just endlessly doing things and thinking, I am a better person at solving this and a, and a better person cognitively now than I was 10 minutes ago was an unbelievable experience. I think that's a really incredible way of describing a game. It's one of the reasons that I love playing through these um, these incredibly dense JRPGs. That idea that your understanding is, is a power-up in and of itself. Yeah, like, uh, any game can chuck new guns and all the rest of it, shit, and new abilities. But the witness gives you nothing. It gives you nothing in terms of power ups. It doesn't give you even a pair of shoes to make you walk faster, <laughs> as, as far as I know. All it gives you is things that you have no idea how to do right from the starts. There's no, okay, there's no hand holding. There's no, there's not really a tutorial outside of just. Just do it, and this door will open. But the more that you do it, you are the one yourself that's powering up in that sense. What a wonderful way of thinking about playing through and understanding games. Video games can be such an edifying experience, can't they? And it's such a shame that they've often been relegated to just um, 
these things that we waste our time on when, like you said, they are things that give us this wonderful cognitive development. They give us problem solving skills. They give us an appreciation for um, different different kinds of, uh, of of narrative structure. They give us an appreciation of these incredibly involving stories that take tens of hours to uh, to work through and appreciate. It's Oh, it, it, it's, it, this has been an invigorating listen, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> now I have to play through The Witness myself, I guess. Yeah. Please do. Please do. So there we have it. That was Chris's third favourite video game of all time. And it was... The Witness. If you've enjoyed being a witness to this episode, then please <laughs> do share the podcast on social media, tell your friends about it, and reach out to us on our social media platforms. Tell us what you're playing, tell us what games uh, you like, tell us what your top 10 favourite video games of all time are, tell us what you think of The Witness, of Skyward Sword, of Digimon Cyber Sleuth. You can find all of our social media links on our link tree at O3C Podcast, or you can reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I'm at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. Ooh. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, please do think about checking out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash our three cents. And you can find a whole bunch of amazing bonus content in exchange for a few pennies of support if you're willing to throw that our way. And please do join us next week when Mindy will be telling us all about his third favourite video game of all time. Could literally be anything. Could be anything. <laughs> Could be anything. <laughs> Hi, Stu. Hi, Luke. Do you fancy doing a podcast covering every segment of every episode of the beloved 90s cartoon Animaniacs? No, I hate Animaniacs. Join me, Luke, the Warner lover, and him, Stu, the Warner resistor, for Animani Chat, covering every segment of every episode of the hit 90s cartoon Animaniacs, as well as its many spin-offs, including comics, video games, and the movie, not to mention the recent reboot. It's gonna be explainy to the max. Oh... Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network.